We had a, another aircraft to our left and they were doing a left pedal turn out and they said that they saw all this debris fly by and they kept the turn going around to the left looking down expecting to see us tumbling down the hillside. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you here today. And I have someone with me here today as well. Hello. I'm really happy that you're having me once again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about gliding adventures and everything that is connected with aviation. Barbara, glad to have you back. And you have some stuff you've been doing too we're going to talk about. But upcoming episode today, we have Sarah. Now, she's a glider pilot, but she recently retired from her day job. She was flying helicopters for 46 years. Oh my God, that's that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I can't really imagine flying uh, professionally for that long. So she certainly must be a really amazing pilot. Yes, absolutely. She's got some amazing stories that she's going to share with us later. I'm excited to share those. We also have a brand new segment. Sergio has been at it and he's going to have a segment about in-flight fatigue, mentally and physically, and how important that is and what we can do about it. So I'm excited to hear that one. I'm excited about to hear this one as well, because I think that this is a topic that is not really discussed as much as it, as it should be. So I'm really excited to hear about this as well. Absolutely. What have you been up to? You've been pretty busy. Uh, yes, actually, I went to Slovakia uh, to fly two competitions, FCC, Flight Challenge Cup, and Fatra Glide, uh, both happening in Slovakia, obviously. Uh, so three weeks of gliding and meeting great friends. So yeah, it was actually, I had been really busy, but I enjoy that really, really much. So your competition, you, you had uh, someone that I'm sure everyone knows who it is. Oh but... yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I fly, I fly standard class, but during FCC, I went to a 50 meter class which is like connected together. And uh, when I saw that Sebastian will be flying as the, uh, as well there, I said, oh my God, okay. Uh, being with the <laughs> world champion, being with the world champion, like multiple time uh, world champion, uh, that would be fun. <laughs> and it was actually, I learned so much from him and from the others as well, because the, the class was full of amazing pilots. T to me, it was a blast, really. Oh, that's awesome. So can you tell me about it? Uh, well, we had we had pretty nice gliding days uh, in Slovakia. Uh, unfortunately, one day that was flyable uh, was cancelled because um, uh, one person, like we, we don't know who that was, but they announced uh, bombs all over uh, Slovak airports. So we had to oh, evacuate no. ourselves. Oh yeah, that was that was that was something I haven't experienced before. So we had to leave the airfield immediately. And um, yeah, so, so we enjoyed pretty nice trip to, to nearby Watchtower. But yeah, one day was screwed because of that. Otherwise, we had really challenging weather as well. Not really a nice one because one day uh, I managed to, to fly the task for 130 kilometers per hour average speed so that was that was something insane uh, and I and I enjoyed that pretty much 
And also we had some challenging days uh, when there was rain everywhere around Prievidza airfield. So it was pretty challenging to even stay airborne, but we managed to fly the task. So um, yeah, a lot of experience gained. Yeah, I was following your stories on Instagram. Of course, you're the gliding junkie. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I was pretty active during the competition as I was actually asked to. And uh, I didn't share much, actually. I wanted to share a bit more. But in flight, there wasn't too much time to focus on um, taking photos or videos as I was trying to prepare myself mentally for upcoming competitions as well. So I just wanted to try how it works after the winter preparation. But yeah, it was... um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I try to share as much as possible for the others. Yeah, I enjoyed watching that. But yeah, it did look like you had some challenging challenging days as far as weather. Yeah, Bobby McFerrin really, made it really um, bearable because one day during the rain showers, I was uh, singing it to myself like most of the, most of the flight. So <laughs> nice. uh, don't worry, be happy. Yeah. That, that's, that was a per- perfect song for the day. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. I love it. How did you end up on the board? What were some of your better days? Uh, well, I actually uh, didn't manage to take a podium uh, during the comp, like for the daily results. But I think that I flew averagely good. Not that good as I would love to, but, but because there were there were many mistakes that I made especially on the last day when I arrived uh, like seven minutes before uh, the time on the AAT task. So I was pretty mad on myself that I didn't calculate that better. So yeah, that wasn't really good. But one day was especially good for me. I chose to a totally different path uh, for the task. It was also an AAT task and I managed to, to fly it a bit better and got some speed and that was actually the flight when uh when i got 130 kilometers per hour with ls8 so that was something i enjoyed really much uh i also i also got a five meter thermal average so uh, that was a blast (laughs) i call this a gliding orgasm i hope that it's not something that i'm not supposed (laughs) to say on the podcast but But i think that every pilot glider pilot can relate to it oh yeah absolutely so as far as the area goes, are, are, were you mostly thermaling then? What, what kind of soaring? Well, um, it, was, it was actually um, a combination of uh, thermals and we also had some nice convergence lines. So yeah, I think uh, we didn't actually uh, manage to catch the wave because the wind wasn't really strong during FCC, also like bad direction. So we didn't have to struggle with a strong wind during FCC. We struggled with wind dur- during Fatra Glide. That was the, the competition after, right after the FCC. Some really nice energy lines and uh, thermals. That was it. Nice. And what were some of your most intense moments? One of the most intense moments that's really hard to say for me because actually there were many. And um, I think that one of one of those was uh, the five meter thermal during FCC. I was really only on my own, so I could enjoy it. And 
yeah, I, I screamed and laughed in the glider. It was amazing. And also uh, another another pretty intense moment was when we were leaving Lotatras with my teammates because we were pretty low and uh, it didn't really work that well on that day. We just were talking to the, each other on the radio and say, oh, okay, if we don't get a the thermal over there, uh, we probably need to glide away from the mountains because we need to land. So that was pretty intense, but we managed to find pretty reasonable three meter thermal. So it was okay. And we actually managed that and finished the task, even though we were pretty slow on that day. So that was another moment when it was pretty intense. And probably uh, the last flight uh, in Slovakia for me dur during Fatra Glide. Uh, I also got five meter thermal average uh, at, uh, at the border of High Tatras. So I could enjoy the view in a really nice, smooth, stable thermal that was amazing. Beautiful, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I still I still got pretty emotional because I didn't want to leave Slovakia as I love the people over there. I have many friends there and I love the flying over there. So, yeah, I cried in my car when I was driving back home, even though I was looking forward to go home. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the, the experience uh, and all the people I met there during those three weeks. Yeah, that was amazing. What's the distance from home to there? Uh, it's like five hours. I, okay. I don't actually know right. what the kilometers are, but five hours of drive. So you tra you trailered your LS8 then? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got my trailer. Not not my, but uh, the trailer from um, uh, our NAC. And because th th only thanks to our Czech NAC, we can actually enjoy all the beautiful gliders. And yeah, it's it's great to be in the team. So thank you for the support, Czech National Ira Club. <laughs> and um, well, it takes five hours with a trailer, something around four hours without a trailer. But I usually okay. go there with my glider to, to enjoy some flying too. So Nice. So what are you doing the rest of the season? What are your plans? Well, at the moment, I'm at home. I need to work a bit as well. <laughs> I was trying to work during the competition, but uh, I need to focus uh, on the work as well. Uh, for some time, I have to be um, a responsible adult sometime as well. Uh, <laughs> ah, bummer. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah uh, we have an upcoming competition in Zbraslavice in my home area club, AZ Cup, where I will uh, just work as organizational stuff. So, yeah, I will basically be um, on-ground operational person uh, and then uh, at the end of June, we are leaving for Spain for the Women Worlds. I'm looking forward to it because I saw a French, uh, French team that was uh, training in uh, Garay and they enjoyed pretty reasonable weather. So I'm looking forward to it. Oh, nice. Then, of course, we have Czech National uh, Championship at the end of August. So those are two upcoming competitions for me. Nice. You got some exciting stuff coming up. Very cool. Yeah, still, still something to look forward to. Absolutely. All right. Do you want to hear Sarah's story? Definitely. I'm thrilled to hear it. All right. Let's join her. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. Well, hi, Chuck. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, 
uh, honored and excited to be here. Um, I was, uh, as I said, flabbergasted when you asked me to be on your podcast. And uh, I thought, who, me? (laughs) But uh, thank you again. I, I appreciate it. And I'm really happy to be here. Well, I'm honored that you're going to be here to tell your story. And what an amazing story. How did your aviation story begin? Well, let's see. Um, a lot of people uh, had family who were in aviation, and that's that's true with me. My dad was a uh, an Army aviator. He was a career uh, officer in the Army, 28 years, and a Vietnam vet. He flew both fixed wing and rotary wing, which was, I guess, relatively common in those days. So, you know, I, myself and my siblings, my three brothers and a sister, were around aviation for a good part of our early lives, living on different military bases. And, and we lived at, um, at Fort Rucker, Mother Rucker, which is where uh, the U.S. Army Aviation Center is. And that's where a lot of the Army aviators, or all of them, are trained, at least primary. So got to see all the goings-on going on around there all the time. And one of my favorite days of the year was Armed Forces Day. And that's when my dad would load us all into the station wagon and take us out to one of the Army airfields where they had static displays. And I would just crawl all over those machines. I was just fascinated by them, the way they, the way they looked, the way they smelled, you know, the way they felt. I couldn't imagine what it was like to fly one, and I didn't imagine that I ever would. But uh, I really loved them. I loved watching them. I had pictures of them. I watched all the shows on TV and everything else. So, you know, the, the roots were there. And uh, I graduated from high school in uh, a while ago, <laughs> and uh, 1970. <laughs> and I went to college, um, and I was a theater major in college. Uh, I really didn't think that much about, about aviation at all. And I ended up, just prior to graduation, uh, working in the uh, audio field uh, with off-Broadway touring shows and some rock shows and that kind of thing. And it was in the mid-70s. Oh, nice. And I came home in between tours, and my parents were not happy about what I was doing. At the time, uh, unbeknownst to me, the Army was uh, recruiting women to be helicopter pilots. You know, they had a slogan that they could make a housewife helicopter pilot. It was a little bit, sounds a little bit demeaning these days, but it didn't then. And my dad talked me into it. <laughs> And the next thing I knew in 1976, I was sworn in and uh, I uh, graduated from flight school in uh, May of 1977 as a rated Army helicopter pilot, uh, warrant officer. My duty assignment was Fort Ord, California, which is where I live now, actually, right next to it. And uh, that was the start of a, a 46 year aviation career that was almost accidental. I I never intended for it to be that. And in fact, somewhere along the way, I I suddenly realized that, darn, I never had a family. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's too late now, but, uh, you know, I had the aviation community. Um, I spent, let's see, four years in the Army, and then I spent a season in, in Alaska with Era Helicopters, and uh, then I spent a year in the Santa Barbara Channel flying to the oil and gas concerns in the Santa Barbara Channel with a company called Rotoraids. And then I went back to area aviation another season in Alaska and then transferred to the Gulf of Mexico, once again, oil and gas, 
and I spent 23 years uh, flying helicopters offshore. And uh, there were five seasons of firefighting in there as well. Mm. I left there in 2005 and came to work uh, here where I live uh, for a company called CalSTAR and Air Ambulance, CMS. And I spent the next almost 18 years with them. And I just retired uh, in February, February 23rd of this of this year from, uh, well, from doing that. So, congratulations. Well, thank you. I have to back up a little bit here. I'm just curious about Alaska. You know, we hear a, a lot about how it's it's a lot rougher to fly there. You know, of course, you hear airplanes because a lot of those guys up there are pilots. They have to be to even live up there. So in a helicopter, what are you feeling? Well, what I did, uh, I was a co-pilot because I was inexperienced. So I was we're flying, we were flying two pilot helicopters. Uh, first, there were Bell 212s. And then the second time I was up there were Bell 412s. 90% of it was offshore and you know, out over the water, oh, not terrible. And it was during the okay. summer season, so it, it wasn't bad. I did go up and fly uh, one January for, I think, about three weeks. And it was down on the Alaska Peninsula. And it was in support of a uh, airfield that was being built by Chevron for a, uh, a land oil rig that they were going to put up. And there was a bit of turbulence down there. We flew through a mountain pass one time that was absolutely sporty. I remember that really well. Um, <laughs> the, the captain I was flying with, and this was in the 212, and they were, they were pretty benign. They, they handled turbulence pretty well let me fly it through the pass and then asked me, why were you horsing it around like that? <laughs> I was just trying to make it worse. That's all, you know, but, <laughs> but that was really it. You know, it was, that was, um, um, it was all pretty under control, regulated flying. And, you know, Aero was a big company, had modern equipment and well-funded and well, the maintenance was outstanding. The training was top, top of the, top of the game and and the pilots that flew there were too i did get to see some of the uh transportation let's put it that way up in alaska back in the early 80s and there were some airplanes that were is he really going to get in that thing and try to make it fly <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah it was it was an interesting place <laughs> well as far as the ems goes I'm sure you had a crew in the back. I mean, were you responsible for any of the medical stuff? How, how does that work? Well, that's a common question. Uh, pilots, no. We, we just fly. Uh, okay. There are two, two medical crew members on board, either two nurses, two medics, or nurse medic. It just depends on uh, who's on that day. And, you know, sitting in the front, you've got the intercom on, and there's a uh, some of the later machines I flew, the EC-135, there's a curtain between you and the uh, in the uh, area in the back of the aircraft where the uh, patient's okay. being taken care of. And yeah. you've got the intercom on. So you can hear what the nurses are talking about. And you pick up on the jargon after a while. Yeah. Uh, so you kind of know what's going on. They do the same with, with you. I mean, when we go to either a hospital to pick up a patient or to a scene to pick up a patient, one of the med crews riding in the front, the other one's riding in the back. And uh, so they see what's going on. And we also had a rule when it came to uh, accepting a flight, uh, three to say go, one to say no. If anybody was nervous about something or didn't like something they saw, then we cancel the flight. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was not medical person. Um, I heard a little more than I wanted to, but, you know, I learned a little yeah, more than I'm I sure. wanted to. But, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that was that. 
most of us are familiar with, of course, the cockpit of a glider, mm-hmm. but of course not a helicopter. And I know you've flown several, and I'm sure a lot of them are, are different. But could you take us with you now in the chopper and go on a flight, maybe from pre-flight to checklist, and just give us an idea what it's like? Okay, yeah. Um, we'll use uh, my last job because that's, that's fresh in my memory. And the helicopter was a, uh, that we had for the last seven or eight years was a, an EC-135, which is made by Airbus, which is the European consortium. And uh, it, was a, it was a light twin. It was uh, powered by two Pratt & Whitney turbines, PW-206s, and they were about 800 horsepower apiece. And mm-hmm. the max gross weight on the thing was uh, right at 6,000 pounds. Mm. And uh, we would we would keep it at around right at two hours of fuel because the all of the medical gear they had in the back. I mean, it's a flying ER. They've got all kinds of machines back there. It's pretty yeah. heavy. So uh, we kept it at a fuel state where we could have a rendezvous with an ambulance at our base and be able to go to a hospital from there and be able to carry up to about a 200 pound patient. The way the the shift would start is either day shift or night shift. It was all the same. I'd report for duty about a half hour before my shift started, talk things over with the, the outgoing pilot. And we were crewed 24 hours, but the pilots flew 12 hour shifts. We'd turn things over, talk about weather, talk about what happened, talk about some of the calls. If there were any that day, talk about any issues with the aircraft. And uh, then I would go down to the aircraft after he left and uh, just do a walk around, check all fluid levels, uh, check the maintenance log, make sure there was there were no open write-ups, or sign off my pre-flight. Then I'd set the cockpit up the way I wanted, uh, move the seat where I needed it to be. I'm not big, so I had to move it you know, forward a bit and then move the pedals back so I could reach everything and uh, get the lighting where I wanted it. We always carried an iPad. It was a, an electronic flight bag, they called it. And uh, we had four flight on that and a lot of other stuff that we used. And we had two. One was in the aircraft. The other one was upstairs in the quarters. And make sure that that was charged and up to date and all that. And just, you know, general housekeeping in the aircraft. And uh, then I'd go upstairs and get the weather picture. And uh, I would look at a lot of the same weather uh, that we use for soaring. But I would stop at a certain point. I want What I would look at is an overall uh, picture of the area we flew in. And there's a, a website called the HEMS tool, and it's a, a, a map, and there's a depiction of each airport on the map, and it's up there. Each one of the airports is updated in real time, and you hover over it, and it tells you what the TAF is, not the TAF, excuse me, the the, uh, the current observation is for the for that airport, and they're color coded. It's green, it's 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 VFR. If it's red, it's IFR. If it's purple, it's low IFR. And uh, then I'd look at the satellite photo, see what the weather systems were doing. And then I'd read some of the synopsis and see which, what we we're going to encounter over the next, oh, 12 hours of the shift and where, you know, uh, then I would settle back and wait for a call. And if we got a call, uh, the way the call would go down was uh, we had an, uh, each one of the crew members had an iPhone and uh, we had an app on that, that our dispatch center used to activate us. And these tones would come over the iPhone and it was akin to fingernails on a blackboard. <laughs> it would get your attention. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, the, one of the dispatchers would come over that app and say, Calstar 5, scene call request, uh, firecom requesting such and such to such and such to such and such a place. Uh, such and such turned it down. Such and such turned it down. Such and such turned it down. If there are other 
basis that it turned it down for whatever reason. And I take a quick look at the weather, see where we had to go. And there were a couple of things that had to happen. One, could I get to the patient? Two, if I got to the patient, could I get the patient to where they needed to be? And getting back to the base was not that big a consideration, but it, it was one of them. But the, the first two were weighted pretty heavily. And uh, I'd tell the, uh, the med crew, they got the same page. They'd come to the pilot room and, and I'd say, what do you think? And they'd go, yeah, okay. Anybody nervous about weather or anything like that? No, it's fine. It's VFR. Let's go. I would call dispatch back on the phone and I'd say, okay, we're going. And I give them our weight and balance. We had to calculate weight and balance prior to each flight. And we also had to do uh, a risk assessment, uh, which came out when the FAA instituted part 135-600, which was for uh, aeromedical flights, uh, because the accident rate was pretty notorious for a while with the, uh, uh, in the aeromedical field. So they, they instituted these steps that we had to take before we went out the door to go fly. And, uh, once everybody was fine, we gather up our gear, our flight helmets, all that, and go down to the aircraft and the way Calstar, I guess most of the EMS companies require the aircraft to be started is with the med crew outside. You know, I mean, I never could figure that out, but that's, that's what they Hmm. wanted. The best place to be is inside the aircraft, but yeah, they're standing outside and they're on the intercom Hmm. and you'd, you'd get everything set up and you'd start first engine and then you'd start second engine and you tell them both run and get on board and they climb on board. And then you'd all the avionics on, you let the autopilot self-test, you'd pick up the ATIS because we were on a towered airport, call the tower and say, we need to go in this direction and they'd clear us out and we would go where we needed to go either to a hospital to pick up a patient to transfer to another hospital or to a scene call and pick up whatever the scene might be. It might be somebody that fell off a roof or somebody that was riding a bicycle and fell down, or it might've been a pretty ugly auto- automobile accident. And there, you know, there were a few of those. And then we would know what was the closest trauma center. If it was a scene call to take the patients to and where we would go there depended upon whether or not the patient was a pediatric, a burn or an adult. If it was a, a transfer from one hospital to another, we knew which hospital we were going to go to before we even got to the patient. So we would do that, pick the patient up, take him to the hospital, and sit up in the helicopter for an hour or so while they were downstairs taking care of business. And then they'd come back up and, and we'd fly back to the base. And sometimes we'd get uh, activated for another call on the way back. And if we had the fuel to do it, we would. Uh, if fuel was close by and we could get it within a reasonable, reasonable amount of time, we'd drop in and put on more fuel and go do the next call. Or we'd just go back to the base and and do the post-flight paperwork and the nurses had to do charting, which takes them hours. And I would do my post-flight paperwork, which took me minutes. So did I feel guilty? No, but you know, <laughs> and uh, you know, we'd sit around and wait. There's a lot of food eaten too much, actually. Uh, there was Netflix watched and there was other things that were done. So that was pretty much what a flight, an AMS flight was like. I'm sure nice, I overlooked nice. something, but those are all the high spots. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thanks for taking us for a ride, putting us oh, you're welcome. in the chopper. You are welcome. You now have just over 20 hours in, in gliders, but you've already flown, I believe, the ASK-21, the Grub-103, I think the DG-1000, right? And mm-hmm. the SZD-51, and of course, your standard, standard Cirrus. Mm-hmm. What do you like about each one of those gliders? And so far, what would be your favorite to fly? Well, I'll start with favorite to fly. It's, uh, my Cirrus is a sweetheart and, uh, she's mine. <laughs> so that, that, that makes her a yeah, favorite. Yeah. Um, 
you know, when it, when it comes to a, a really nice, sophisticated machine, it would be the DG-1000. And yeah. uh, I, I kind of like flying two-pilot too, although being in my cockpit by myself in a cockpit that doesn't fit anybody but me is, is pretty, pretty neat too. You know, the differences between the two aircraft, I don't know if you've flown uh, a Cirrus or a DG-1000. DG-1000 flies like a big machine. It's heavy on the controls, and uh, but it doesn't come down. You know, it stays up really, really well, yeah. and it, it holds airspeed really well and penetrates really well, and it thermals really well. Cirrus does that, too. It just goes straight ahead a little slower. But it turns really tight, and when you're in a thermal, it climbs like you won't believe. And uh, it's it's kind of like a Miata compared to a Z car. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, right, it's, gotcha. you know, it's it's pretty cool. I really like it. And then you know, next, um, I would say the K21 because it's just so easy okay. to fly, and it's it's very very forgiving. You know, and yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it likes to stay up too. It doesn't come down. It's quiet and it's nimble and it's surprisingly a really fun machine to fly. And then the the junior that was a lot of fun. But the thing with the junior is is it doesn't penetrate very well. If you got a headwind, it just won't go. You know, oh, it's yeah. uh, you know I, I I flew it in order to prep myself for flying my Cirrus when it was finally ready to go. And I much prefer the Cirrus to the junior. And then the last one would be the Grobe. The Grobe, you know, flies kind of like an old Ford pickup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's right. It's got a lot of adverse yaw. It uh, it's it's kind of slow and pokey, and it's a yeah. solid machine, though. You know, it it that was the first glider I flew, and it's this kind of a soft spot in my heart because of that. You know, I, I I really enjoyed it. You know, the visibility out of it is good and all that, but it's it's a Grobe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how did you get into gliders? Was it while you were flying helicopters or did that happen after? No, it happened while. And uh, go back about 40 plus years, I, w I joined the flying club uh, here on Fort Ord at, at what was Fritchie Army Airfield at the time. We had a flying club there and they had a oh, 172, a couple of uh, Cessna 150s and uh, gosh, I can't remember what else. And it was cheap back then. You know, if you remember, you, it was a minimal amount that you paid and, and uh, you'd get checked out. And I got up to um, about 20, 25 hours and was just getting ready to take my ad on. And I broke my wrist. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So I was grounded for about six weeks. And yeah. I just, I never went back to flying the airplanes. I just, I just didn't do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know. I don't know why, but somewhere in the back of my mind was always a curiosity about sailplanes. You know, I I didn't know much more about them than the than the symbol on the VFR sectional. You know, and <laughs> right. uh, you know that that was really about it. Then it was about oh, a year and a half, two years ago now. My dad had passed away, and uh, uh, we'd done a memorial for him. And uh, I was thinking, you know what? You know, you're going to retire pretty soon and you're no spring chicken. If you're going to do things, you better do them now. You know, I didn't think any more about it, but I was noodling through YouTube at work one evening and one of Christopher Fleming's videos came up. Uh, fan oh, yeah. Story. yeah. And I watched that and I was literally awestruck. Uh, the majesty 
and uh, the grace. And I was looking at this, you know, he's got a, an Ash 31 MI, you know, which is a 20 meter ship. Yeah. And, which I didn't know then. And, you know, he's got the 360 camera in it. So there were views back into the cockpit of him flying the machine and you could see the wingtips out there flexing up and down and all of this. And I was like, wow, I didn't know they were that sophisticated. <laughs> I thought they were like, you know, minimoas or whatever, you know, that, that was my, right. my, uh, <laughs> my vision of a glider, you know? Yeah. So I gobbled up all of Chris's videos and then I stumbled upon Baleka, you know, Matt Wright. And uh, I watched yeah, a yeah. bunch of his videos and then I found out yeah. what had happened to him. And that was kind of yeah. a shock. And uh, I, I found Bruno Vassal, of course, and uh, yep. Clement Sidefeck, uh, Chess in the Sky, and Tim Bromhead, yep. you know, Pure Line, yep. and yep. Stefan Langer, all of them. I watched all those videos and I thought, wow, you know, this is so cool. I got to do this. So I got on the internet in, in about a week. I was back on the internet and I was looking for where can I get glider lessons? And I don't know how many times I've been in and out of Hollister Airport in the helicopter, but for some reason, I never noticed all these gliders that were tied down on the ramp there. Right. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, duh. <laughs> you know, so there, there it is, Hollister Soaring Center. So I sent him an email. I want to do an introductory flight. And Gianni learned it easy, got in touch with me, and he's, he, we got set up, and I came down there, and, and uh, they put me in the Grove 103 with Travis Smith. And Travis became my CF, CFIG, and it went from there. My very first flight, we stayed up for an hour, and uh, it was a overcast day, but it was, if I recall, it was post frontal, so there was some lift, and it was enough to keep right. that robe up in the air for about an hour, right around the airport. And yeah. I was laughing and carrying on and just having the best time. <laughs> you know, I couldn't turn this thing; it was all out of trim and everything else, and. <laughs> we got on the ground. Travis said, you know, there, you know, there's, these have a lot of adverse yaw. And I said, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, those great big wings, you know, you got to help them through to the turn with the rudder pedals. Oh, right. okay. So, you know, and there we went. <laughs> we started from there. <laughs> nice. Hey, this is Bruno Vassal, Bravo 4. And you're listening to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. So was it easy to transition? You fly a helicopter with your feet when you're hovering. That's that's your directional control. Anything right. below about oh, 30 knots or so, it's mostly with your feet. You make a power change. Okay. You got to move your feet, keep the nose where you want it. And when, you, when you're hovering along, you, you turn it with the pedals left and right and so on. And you and you, your, your thrust lever is the collective. That's the power lever on your left that you pull up and down. Uh, you make it go forward with the cyclic and you stop it by coming back on the cyclic. That's the stick. And okay. then left and right is like your ailerons, but you steer it with your feet. So gliders are the same way. 
I found out. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, it didn't take much for me to get used to flying glider at all. In fact, Travis was saying that every helicopter pilot he's ever flown with has transitioned into gliders pretty easily. Oh, nice. Cool. You know, he had me with, in four hours, I soloed. You know, I wow. did the required whatever, and in four hours, I soloed. I was shocked because it took me almost 15 hours to solo in a helicopter for the first time. Right. right. And, That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, and, and on my very first training flight, he had me boxing the wake. And wow. I, mean, I had, I had no idea, you know, but <laughs> yeah. And, uh, then we were doing rope breaks and, you know, we did a hundred foot rope break, landed straight ahead, big deal. And we had a 200 foot rope break and, oh yeah, okay. Made it back, landed it on the runway. And, and he said, well, right. what'd you think of all that? And I said, it's a non-event, <laughs> you know, you have an engine failure in a helicopter. You look down between your feet and that's where you're going. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, so you know even even in a twin engine helicopter certain regimes of flight if you, you lose an engine it's coming down so yeah and not exactly where you want it to so you know the glider was just easy you know yeah and you know it, that that was that it yeah helicopter pilots take to um flying gliders at least i did like a fish to water <laughs> nice sarah you're registered for a thermal camp at a air sailing this summer. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about that? What And what's the uh, conditions there? Let's see. Air sailing is about um, 30 miles to the northeast of Reno. So it's, it's, it's high desert. It's, um, okay. um, yeah, there's it's a lot of mountains around there. Um, I think the elevation, I haven't looked at the sectional. I'm not sure. I know that uh, Reno is around 4,000 feet. So Air sailing is probably in that neighborhood, and there's mountains around there that are seven, eight, nine thousand feet. Some if to the west, the Sierras are ten, eleven thousand feet. The cloud bases are high, so you know the thermals are tall. They they go up a long way. <clears throat> air air sailing, I yeah, I don't really know much about their history. I've gotten to know Nita Montague, who was one of the principals there, and you know, shout out to Nita. Uh, she told me last year you need to come to thermal camp. And, uh, I decided this year, uh, that, yeah, I would, I would go. And it's a week long camp. It's a Monday through a Friday and it's, uh, oh, wow. June, June 5th through June 10th. I think it is. It's the first week of June. It's half a day of instruction, um, classroom, you know, discussion and yeah, gaming and all that kind of thing. And then around noon is when the flying starts and, and there's going to be We'll have different gliders. They've got K-21s. I think BASA, the Bay Area Soaring Association, who I belong to, is going to send up the DG-1000. They also have a DG-505. I think they're going to bring both of those up there. And I okay. do believe that Hollister Soaring is going to send one of their K-21s up there as well. And I thought I'd bring my glider along, but the more I think about it, I, 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 I don't know at this time that I will because I probably really won't get a chance to fly it. And it may not be a yeah. good idea in my level of experience to go out by myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still in the waiting pool. I'm not really right off the diving board into the deep end yet, you know? So Papa Yankee may stay home. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be around a bunch of pilots and a lot of good discussion, a lot of learning, you know, it's a lot of stimulus and flying in conditions that I've, you know, seen in videos and have never done myself in a glider anyway, and, and, uh, and can stay up for more than, uh, an hour and get more than glide from the 
departing airport, which will be really something. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So in all your experience being in the air and helicopters, do you have a couple scary moments and what did you learn from them? There have been, you know, it's, it's surprising. There, there were not that many, but some of them, the ones that did happen, uh, that I remember make an impression. Um, the first one was, uh, when I was in primary learning how to fly a helicopter and my, uh, flight instructor got a little overconfident with me and, and we were doing auto rotations in a, in a Hughes TH 55, which is a piston engine, little teeny two place. It, it, it's, it's a Schweitzer now, a little two place thing that had 260 horsepower, IO 360, uh, four cylinder engine on it and a low inertia rotor, three bladed low inertia rotor. In other words, uh, the rotor doesn't store a lot of energy and it runs out of energy really quickly if you don't manage it properly. And I couldn't even hover yet. And we're doing these auto rotations and he had me do one and he's talking me through it. And uh, you enter the auto rotation by rolling the throttle off. You pick out your point of landing. And in the army, they had stage fields and they had five runways lined up side by side. They were called lanes. And we're lined up on one of those lanes and you're supposed to land at a certain point on the lane. And down we come. And at the bottom of the auto rotation at about uh, in the TH-55, I believe it was around 30 or 40 or 50 feet, you do a deceleration. And that's you raise the nose and you, you scrub off your forward speed. And when you get down to oh, about five feet above the ground, then you pull in the collective pitch and you use up the inertia in the rotor system to cushion your landing. And you may have some ground slide or you may not but uh i didn't know enough uh to when I, I i got to the bottom of the auto rotation that i had to keep the nose where it needed to be with the pedals there's the pedals again and uh the first thing i did that was wrong is i literally stood it on its tail for the deceleration and i can remember mm -hmm. my cfi saying not that much and uh, he was pushing forward on the cyclic and then i could see the ground out of the corner of my eye so i yanked up on the collective pitch and didn't do anything with the pedals. And the silly thing turned around backwards and landed oh. backwards. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we sat there for a minute and it was still running. And I remember looking at my instructor and I said, what was that? And he said, that's what we call a crash. And, and we sat there for a couple more minutes <laughs> and nothing. There were no parts flying off or anything. And the rotor is still turning and all that. And he goes, just wait here. I'm going to get out and walk around. And, and, and the tower is calling us on the radio. You guys all right? You guys all right? You know, <laughs> and uh, he climbed back in and he said, not a thing wrong. I told you they built these things tough, you know. <laughs> so uh, I got, had a good wow. talking to after that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, then the next one, uh, I, was, uh, I was still in the Army. I was, I was pretty new in the unit. We were flying UH-1s. And we were at a, a field exercise, and we were doing a demonstration for the deputy commanding general of, of the of Fort Ord, where we would insert troops on the side of this mountain. You know, hidden. We were, didn't go all the way up to the top. We hovered up to the side of the mountain, pretty good slope. And the troops would get out, fan out uh, left and right from the aircraft, and then back the aircraft up, and go fly around a little orbit, then come back in and get them. And I was flying with a, another pilot who had just come back from Korea, had spent a year in Korea, tour duty over there. And uh, I did the insertion and I was flying from the left seat. The troops got out and we backed away from the, the hillside and he took the controls 
and we did the orbit and then he went we went back in he 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 flew the aircraft back in and he was below the troops he was supposed to be above them but he was below the troops so i was the non-flying pilot so i was telling them to go around the right and the left and stay away from the rotor system and come back up you know underneath the aircraft and get a hold of the skids and unbeknownst to me the flying pilot was doing the same thing <laughs> rather than oh. flying the helicopter. Mm. And the, the nose of the aircraft or the toes of the skids, I'm not sure which, touched the hillside. No big deal. But the aircraft started to back up when that happened. And because it was backing up, he pushed the cyclic forward. And when he did that, the main rotor hit the ground. Oh. And at our 12 o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> it knocked off, oh, an inch or two of each blade. Uh, but there was a lot of vibration and noise and... Mm. Scared the daylights out of the poor troops on the ground. And we had a another aircraft to our left, and they were doing a left pedal turnouts. And they said that they saw all this debris fly by. And they kept the turn going around to the left, looking down, expecting to see us tumbling down the hillside. Yeah, And right. they didn't see us. So they did the 360 all around, and they saw us landing up on top of the hill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were okay. It's just, you know, one of those scary moments. This better not happen again. Yeah, wow. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah, needless to say, there was a lot of discussion about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then some years later, I was flying in the Gulf of Mexico, and I was flying a BO-105, which is a light twin. And I was flying uh, what's called in the field. I was going, uh, moving oil field workers uh, who work for a specific company that I was flying for uh, from platform to platform. And, and we'd had a couple of days of fog. This day, it had cleared off, and we had a central platform where the quarters were. That's where everybody lived, and that's where the two helicopters that we had based out there were both based. And uh, I was tasked to go over to a platform that was about three miles away and take a, one of the workers over there because the platform had shut down. You know, the wells had shut in, and he had to get it back online. So I went back over there with him. He called upstairs on the radio and he said, hey, I'm going to be a few minutes. You might as well shut down. So I did. And I was looking around and, you know, it was overcast and there was no wind. And the Gulf of Mexico can be like an oily pond when there's no wind. Hmm. A body yeah. of water like that, just absolutely glass smooth flat, you know. And I was, I could see the quarters platform. Uh, I was about three miles away. And I was just mm, casually watching it. And then all of a sudden it disappeared. <laughs> I went, mm. oh. <laughs> and I called downstairs and I said, Hey, uh, I think the fog's coming in. You want to, we want to get out of here. And, yeah. uh, he said, no, you better go. I'll get the boat. And I said, okay. So I, I fired up, took off heading back towards the platform. And in these days we didn't have GPS. We had Loran. It didn't often work, <laughs> <laughs> but this, this mm. day it did, it came up and I had the quarters platform, uh, programmed into it and I'm flying along and I could still kind of see the quarters platform. It was you know, fuzzy, but it was still there. And then it disappeared completely. And I was about, oh, I don't know, less than a mile from it. I slowed down. I was going to make a turn and go back. And I was at about 100 feet. We had radar altimeters in the, uh, in the helicopter. I was going to make a turn and go back to the, uh, the platform I had come from. And I realized that I couldn't see it either. So mm. <laughs> I did a, a, a slow 360 and I brought it to a hover and I hovered down to the water. And, uh, I was, I don't know, about a five or six foot hover. And I wow. was using my rotor wash as a reference 
you know, to, mm. to tell where the water was. And I had the, the, the course centered to go towards the platform and I'm just hovering very slowly towards the platform. And I noticed it was kind of, I was amused by it. I, that there were all these seagulls sitting in the water and I thought, these birds aren't dumb enough to be flying in this, but look at me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. So I I kept hovering along and, and I saw the, the, the platform, you know, a couple hundred feet from it. And I just hovered up the side of it and landed on the heliport. That was that, you know, I'm not, I'm that, that taught me a lot about, you know, I was still a young pilot that, that I learned a bunch that day. And, mm. uh, uh, in fact, that, that solved a lot of evils at that moment, but, yeah. uh, you know, there weren't many things after that, that, uh, uh that were quite as eye opening. So, wow. you know, you, you talk about your aviation career, your aviation life, and there are things that you got away from, got away with. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, right. that's all you did. You got away with it. You know, the yeah. next time around you may not, so don't do it again. Yeah. You know, right. and I remember the old flying magazine used to have a column in there. I learned about flying from that. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, you know, I used to gobble that up. I would read that all the time. And, you know, I, I survived 46 years of flying helicopters. And yeah. and it was through learning early on, you know, there are old pilots and bold pilots and no old, old bold pilots. And why is that? And, you know, mm-hmm. I learned why. That's one of the things. You just don't take risks. You're not in the business to take risks. You know, you have obligations to lots of different people. So just don't do dumb things. And if you do and you get away with it and you learn from it, don't do it again. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. Oh, certainly. You know, some of us like to go to our club and just enjoy catching a few thermals and flying around for an hour or two and then landing back at the club. And of course, others are more challenge-based and they get into some cross-country and some contest flying. What about you? You know, I, I'm i a very cautious pilot. Um, and some of the stories tell you why. But, uh, um, you know, right now, as I said, I'm still in the waiting pool. And I'm not really comfortable unless the conditions are super strong and I, I, I'm guaranteed that I can get up high and to get more than about 10 or 15 miles from the airport and keep it in glide, you know, or someplace else that's close by, keep that in glide. Uh, so for now I'm a, just go out and catch a few thermals and stay around the airport. And, and that's pretty much all I've done when I can get a chance to stretch my legs and learn to understand McCready and read the weather better and uh, understand where all of the landouts are and and uh, are they really landable and that kind of thing then i'll start i'll start pushing boundaries i'll start going out a little bit and and really yeah. pushing boundaries is the wrong term it's just stretching myself you know you always yeah, want to stay yeah, within exactly. your boundaries it's just stretching yourself yeah so but yeah i'm 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 a i'm i'm a close to the airport pilot and besides that it's aviation community i like hanging around and talking with everybody it's a lot of fun so oh yeah always always love those (laughs) hangar chats oh yes oh yes sarah do you have any shout outs people you want to thank i know you've had a long aviation career oh there are so many um you know way back in the beginning of my uh commercial helicopter career uh the chief pilot at uh era in alaska uh his name was bob culver 
and uh, he was probably one of the greatest pilots I've ever known, and and he was one of the greatest people too. And I mean, he lived and breathed aviation, and he was not one of those bold pilots. He was pragmatic. Uh, he was a terrific stick and rudder person. Uh, he knew the aircraft. He knew the performance numbers. Uh, he understood weather. And I sat at his knees and learned. <laughs> you know, he was he was just amazing. Then there were other people that I flew with, oh, in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, down through the years that were equally adept. And, uh, you know, I learned from them too. And uh, in EMS, it's a little more difficult because you you know, EMS is not really aviation. It's, it's uh, medical using helicopters or airplanes as transport. And you, you, you don't hang around with other pilots. There aren't any others. The only other pilots you see are the pilots you, you change shifts with. And right. once a year, you'll go do recurrent ground school and you'll, you'll see the pilots there. And there generally aren't very many. So, you know, I never really got to know very well pilots other than the ones at the base that I worked at. But when I transitioned into gliders, it's a different story entirely. You know, the, the, um, the pilots that I've gotten to know at Hollister Soaring and at BASA, you know, some of them are retired um, airline pilots, uh, military veterans. Uh, uh, I'm one of the few helicopter pilots. It's pretty interesting. Or just longtime glider pilots and, and oh, wow, what they know and and uh, uh, what they have told me, and they've, they've taken me under their wing. And, you know, at my age, to be taken under somebody's wing is, is kind of flattering, and I really enjoy it. And, you know, there's, there's a few of those. I already mentioned uh, uh, Nita Montague. She was, she was one. The first glider pilot that impressed me and caused me to uh, actually get into gliders was Christopher Fleming, you know. And I, I've never spoken with him in person at all. I've I am him a couple of times, but he, you know, I blame him for my passion for gliders now. And uh, he's got some terrific videos as well. And then there's Gianni Lernadizi at uh, Hollister Soaring. Uh, he took me up in the DG-1000 for the first time. And, and he's, he's Italian. He's very patient. Uh, he's got a lot of stories about the Alps and all of this. And, and he's, he was just, a, he's just a terrific person. And he's, and he's a terrific guy. He owns an air coupe. He flies an air coupe and just loves it, you know. And then there's uh, uh, Travis Smith. He's another one of those, you know, lives and breathes aviation. You know, he just exudes aviation, but he's not bold about it. And he, he was one of the best uh, instructor pilots that I've ever flown with. Then Dan Gudgel, who was the the designee who gave me my check ride to, for my add-on. He, what a, wow, you know, he what he knows. And he's, he's a weather guy. And we stood around and talked about weather for over an hour during the oral exam. Just two old pilots talking to each other and had just the best time. And then when we went up and flew together, it was the same thing. So try this and see what you think, that kind of thing, you know. And you learn so much from that. You know, there, there's plenty of others. There's John Moffitt and there's Dan Colton, Danny Schaefer up at Schaefer Aviation, who took care of Poppy Yankee for me, who did the the, the annual on it this year. And then my friend, Bryant Babcock, who was our base mechanic uh, at CalSTAR, who did the first annual on Papa Yankee and let me keep it in the hangar there for six months while I was getting it ready to fly after I'd bought it. And then John Mitchell, who I uh, met not that long ago, he's a retired Alaska Airlines pilot, great glider pilot. 
know, he lives in Hawaii and he commutes over here to fly the Bossa gliders out of, out of Hollister or other places. And uh, we've spent two hours in the DG-1000 a couple of weekends ago, not getting above 3,000 feet, but just having the best time. Got to soar with a couple of eagles. You know, we couldn't turn as tight as they nice. could, but we had a good time with them, you know. Awesome. And, uh, you know, that's, that's you know, that once again, that's the aviation community. And, and those are the people who, uh, who stand out to me. And I'm sure there are others, but uh, those are the ones right now who are foremost in my mind. So, Sarah, if you're ready, uh, I'm going to throw the lightning round at you. Oh, cool. Okay. So, basically, just a qu- quick uh, question and answer. And uh, if you choose to pass on any of those questions, you can do that, of course. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. If you could pick just one, what glider port or region would be at the top of your bucket list of places to go soaring and why? Truckee. It would scare the daylights out of me, but <laughs> initially. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the terrain, the sky, the energy in the atmosphere there, the soaring community that's up there, I would just love to experience that. That would be number one. What's the highest altitude you've been in a glider, and where was it? Uh, 6,000 feet, and it was out of Hollister, just flying okay. a convergence nice. one day. Yeah, that was it. Right. Well, speaking of convergence, what's your favorite type of lift, thermal, wave, ridge, or convergence? Well, I've only experienced um, thermal and convergence. And so far, convergence has, con- uh, excuse me, convergence has been my favorite because it's just a continuous energy band that you just fly along. And uh, that was cool. I like that. Money, no object, and you could spend it on on only a glider. What dream glider would you buy? And what do you like about it? This is going to sound silly. I would love to have a duodiscus. Uh, Duodiscus T. Number one, it's a beautiful ship. Number two, I understand they, they, they handle akin to my Cirrus, but better. And there's room in there for another pilot. And we can nice, go yeah. long flights on that thing. So that would be great. <laughs> Your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, or local motel? I'm a local motel kind of girl. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. If looking for good lift, would you rather follow a vulture, a hawk, or a raven? Well, I'd never be able to keep up with a hawk. So, And they're awfully small. Probably the best thing would be a vulture. They're great soaring birds. Bucket hat, baseball cap, bandana, or lidless? Oh, bucket hat. I had to get a bucket hat before I was even a pilot. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Metal glider or wooden glider? Oh, gosh. Uh, You know, I've never flown anything wooden, so I'd have to say wooden glider. All right, cool. Spoilers on turn to final, open or closed? It depends on your approach angle. Yep, yep, yep. Tie down for the night or stuff it into the trailer every time, no matter what. Well, right now, I tie it down for the night because I'm not very good in stuffing it into the trailer. I don't want to beat it up. (laughs) (laughs) I know you talked about this a little bit, but favorite gliding YouTube channel? Oh, gosh. You know, my uh, they're all good, you know, and and, and good to great. But I'd, I'd say the, 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 the artist, the master, the, the, the person who, who could just really 
evoke energy and, and excitement in, in flying sailplanes was uh, Matt Wright, Baleka. And uh, uh, right behind that, you know, has, has got to be uh, Chris Fleming. Stefan Langer is awfully good. Uh, uh, Clemens is fantastic. You know, I, I like his analytical approach and he explains everything along the way. And Bruno is a great storyteller. And yeah. Tim Bromhead is awfully, awfully good too. He's got a great manner yes. and he, 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 he edits really well and all that. So, you know, but as far yeah. as entertainment goes, it has to be Baleka. Steak, cheeseburger, pizza, or salad? Pizza. Nice. Yeah. Love, love my pizza. <laughs> Beer, wine, gin, or water? Um, I'm, I, I like wine, but I'd take water. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> Sarah, that was fun. I can't believe it, it's coming to an end here, but, but thank you so much for sharing your story. This was, this was a lot of fun. Oh, it was a lot of fun, Chuck. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. I hope I get to meet you in person one of these days and sit down and break bread and tell flying stories. Oh, that'd be great. I'd look forward yeah. to that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love a chance to show off Papa Yankee to you. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Yeah. We are known also for uh, checking back with our pre previous guest. So I'd love to talk to you again and see how the soaring is going and what you've been up to. I would love that. That would be fantastic. I'm, I'm sure there'll be growth and I'd be pleased to talk with you about it. Absolutely. Good to hear. Good to hear. Sarah, enjoy your night. I will. And uh, you enjoy yours. And again, I'm, I'm humbled. I really enjoyed this and I am just uh, humbled by, the, by you wanting me on your podcast. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, like I said, I'm honored to have you tell your story. So thank you so much for that. Oh, you are so welcome. Hi, everyone. Sergio from Story Master here. Today, we're going to talk about a silent enemy of our long flights, in-flight fatigue, both from mental and physical sources and ways to deal with it. Any pilot who has experienced more than three hours inside a sailplane cockpit knows how discomforting the seating position of a sailplane can become with time. This, together with the extended sunlight exposure and the constant decision taking, will slowly corrode our impetus, leaving us more impatient and making us analyze a lower number of variables when deciding something. Before we talk about in-flight fatigue, it's very important to uh, say that if the pilot starts to feel so tired and fatigued and flight as to affect flight safety, one shall abort the task and land ASAP. The level of fatigue I'll discuss here affects the sportive risk taking during a flight. Uh, the fatigue level that does not affect safety but makes us fly worse or leaves us more complacent with performance impacts on our flights. When we talk about physical comfort when flying, we must pay attention to seating position, cockpit ergonomics, hydration, in-flight eating, cockpit ventilation, and sun cover. Whenever we fly a sailplane that hasn't been pre-configured by us, or whenever any item changes, like a new parachute for instance, uh, spending some 10 minutes seated 
before flying for you to identify if an extra cushion will be needed or if some water bottle or a food package or extra item needs to be placed differently in the cockpit. Uh, who has never experienced back pain in flight due to a harness or a wrongly configured cushion? Well, those 10 minutes seated will save you some hours of true torture in flight. So uh, take this time and set the cockpit for you. And again, no discomfort will take place before 10 minutes. So it's a, it's a good uh, mark there, 10 minute, 10 minute mark. Well, when flying, keeping yourself hydrated is a must. Drink as much water needed for you to not feel thirsty up there. Because when you do feel thirsty, the dehydration process is already in place. Taking regular sips of water each 10 or 15 minutes is a good strategy. And of course, if we are talking about drinking water, we also need to talk about how to relieve ourselves up there. Not thinking about this is the recipe for physical suffering that will ultimately make you aboard the navigation. So try the available resources like unisex, pee bags, pee tubes, diapers or female urinals like the easy peasy frauen urinal. Uh, there are some other options available and we need to try them and to identify the one we are most comfortable with. When it comes to cockpit comfort, ventilation is essential. Keeping a good cabin air mix with outside air is essential. Keeping the sailplane ventilation system clean and unstructured is a must and in addition to that, whenever I start terminaling, I fully open the canopy side window. I put my hand outside to force as much air in the cockpit as possible. To cool down the cockpit and to change the entire air cabin at once. After leaving the thermal when cruising, I do that by only opening the small air scoop if the conditions are too hot outside, so as not to increase the sailplane drag. After covering the physical in-flight fatigue, let's deal with the tricky one, mental fatigue. Flying a sailplane alone in long flights exposes ourselves to the same mind challenges of marathonists, uh, controlling misleading and negative thoughts. During the calmer parts of our flight, our mind will constantly generate lines of thought not related to the flying task itself. Things related to our work or our normal life tasks, like uh, I need to pay that bill next week or I was riding that argument I had with my girlfriend last week. I left my car's windows open. Will it be filled with mosquitoes by the time I get back? Uh, see, what lines of thought I'm talking about? They happen whenever we leave our minds with a low activity level. Whenever this type of thoughts start popping up, block them and don't let your mind wandering without focus. You can even Use affirmative commands saying out loud focus or focus on any other task uh, like drink a, uh, drinking a sip of water. Uh, the more you keep yourself focused in an actual task, the more information from outside you'll be able to read and to use at your favor. On the other side, if you're flying too aggressive and getting low too many times, you might as well get tired. Keeping a constant level or risk 
and I mean the sportive risk here, not safety risk, guarantees a steady level of concentration throughout the flight. When I fly, I avoid getting too enthusiastic or too pessimistic about any event during the flight. The more you allow yourself to divert from a steady level of spirits, the more energy you spend and the less focus you keep on important items that you need to observe during the flight. So keeping a steady mood throughout the flight is super helpful. Good strategy to avoid getting mentally fatigued during the flight is to place some small prizes for yourself during the flight. After I correctly circle lift in less than two turns during the thermal maintenance phase, I give myself the right to buy one snack as a prize. There are some people who like to play a certain song on their phones, for instance. Setting these small mental rewards in the end helps us to reduce the amount of stress for us to maintain focus on a flight and to maintain ourselves at peak of performance. That's it guys, see you in the next episode. If you want more tips about cross-country flying, follow me on Instagram at SurreyMaster or check my website, surreymaster.com. Wow, what an amazing story from Sarah. That I really enjoyed that. Yes, yeah, Sarah is an amazing pilot and pretty intense stories from her, uh, especially the one landing on a mountain. Oh my God, uh, helicopters are hel helicopter pilots are just something else. Yeah, and 46 years of flying, that's... That's, That's awesome. insane. That's an insane experience, mm. but amazing one. Uh, thanks to Sergio, too, for another great segment about in-flight fatigue. That's some important stuff there. Definitely. Guys, listen to the guy, because this is something that we don't talk about much, and it is important to, to know yourself and know what to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Barbara. It's been fun doing the show with you. Definitely thank you for having me and making me listen to Sergio and Sarah and their amazing stories. And uh, I learned something too. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we'll be chatting again soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez. <laughs>